indeed a privilege to be with you at Bethel this morning. It's been a little bit. I can't remember how long, but uh, it's nice to be back. I was told some people might not be here this morning, but I'm glad to see a few people. I wasn't expecting to see some Idaho folks, I believe, might be here. So uh, good to see you all. Uh, I was thinking yesterday of Bethel. I was asked to give a little bit of my church story to a small group that was gathered in Floyd yesterday, and you know, I guess the people that founded this church back in the 50s or 60s had, had probably read that story of Jacob who was fleeing from his brother and and uh, spent the night somewhere and then uh, overnight God met with him, met him with great promises, and he woke up in the morning and called the place Bethel. And it says there in uh, in that chapter in Genesis, this, this is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. That's a great place to have church, isn't it? The house of God and the gate of heaven. I don't know if that's how you count the place you gather or the people you gather with, but uh, I do believe that as a congregation and as God's people, we have that privilege of uh, being that temple and, and meeting together in that way. I'd like to invite you this morning to Galatians chapter 5. There's a passage there that I'd like to read, not so much because we plan to do a detailed study on it, but rather to use it as a an impression of the great contrast that exists between two kinds of life, two kinds of outcomes, and two kinds of expressions. And this is a message that I need to be reminded of quite frequently, probably more frequently than I am, because uh, though the outcomes are quite distinct and quite easy to distinguish one from the other, the factors that lead there are often very subtle. And the things that play into this or that are not always what they seem on the surface. We need to make wise choices there, but but these are very familiar things. Let's just jump in and read the last half of this chapter in Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye do not consume one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, I like this poster you have back here, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. And so, what we're reading here is very familiar. There is a contrast between a this and a that. And the reason we're familiar with both is because we've experienced the this. We've experienced what it is to have the impulses and temptations and probably 
flailings and failings in the first part of that passage, the fallenness of the old nature. And we aspire to the other. We maybe get glimpses of it. We desire it. We read about it. We sense it. We experience it. The first is a carnal man. The second is a spiritual man. The first is Adam's replica, reproducing a fallen nature and whoever lives that way. And the second is is the life of Christ reborn and, and living out in, in this world, in this age, and those that choose to live that way. Now, a while back, John D. Martin was here giving the revival meetings a couple of years ago. And I had the privilege of going online later while I was working up there in Florida and listening to a number of his messages. And uh, I know he was speaking on some of his favorite subjects, the kingdom of God and how it works and what it is. And uh, I enjoyed listening to that and thinking about that. But the concept that he taught, and I'm sure you remember, that God's plan for his people here on this earth is to live in the way that he designed from the beginning so that the world could look and see that this is what life is like. This is how people live whose God is the Lord. I think he said something like that. His marriages work. His families last. His, uh, who do people no harm, who would rather probably lose than call someone else injustice. People who would rather give and share and help. I saw your offering last Sunday to, uh, to Ukraine, that kind of generous uh, giving to those that have much greater need perhaps than we do at this point. That's uh, just what God's people do. You know, man has often tried to create a utopia. We've pulled together uh, socialism and communism and communes and communities and convents and whatever to try to elevate society to a place that, that functions at its best. And the reason it's always failed is because that carnal nature and selfish person has not been dealt with in the way that God provided for. And so communism always turns into something like Cuba. Socialism always turns into something like, like Venezuela. And, and every smaller level, these things uh, get spoiled because Eden will never be reached until man figures out what to do with, with Galatians 5, 19 to 21. That's the problem we always face, the carnal human nature. And God has a better plan to replace the carnal man with a spiritual man. You see how that works. See what happens there. And in the end, it's that carnal man giving way to a spiritual man that makes the difference. Expresses God's original design. And Jesus taught about this. Good hearts produce good fruits. Uh, bad hearts produce something different. And there's no amount of reform or environment that can change the inner problem that man has. Only by putting that part to death and allowing the new to grow can we get anywhere, get anywhere close to the ideals that God desires for us. So this, this passage we've read is not really a text, but it's a springboard. It gives us this basic understanding of this great difference. And I was starting to know what to title a message like this. And I don't know if it's a good title. You could call it The Anatomy of a Spiritual Man. I don't know if it'll come out being like that or not, but that's sort of what I had in mind. Now... The anatomy of a physical man is one thing, and the person that's, that's changed to a spiritual man will have the same physical anatomy. That's easy to understand. But there's something about the interior part that we can't see, and Scripture speaks about that. Now, if you go to a biology book, you'll quickly see how we are, how one part of us is designed. It's a, quite a design. But when God made man, he did not just have a body in mind. He just didn't have 
craniums and femurs and kidneys and livers in mind. You have something much deeper than that. And there's a, a basis for this. I like to, and I'm delving into things here that I can't see. I think there's basis for in Scripture, and you can come talk to me afterwards if I have a wrong view of it. But in Genesis 2 7, it says, when, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Okay, so you have dust, and you have God's breath, and you have man. Now compare that to Genesis 2.19. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. You have dust. You have dirt. You have building material, but then it stops. You don't have part two there. And so, all life originates with God. And so when God created the physical world, you know, life existed in heaven without a physical world, I guess. And the bodies that are there are not physical in the sense we understand them. But when God wanted to put life on earth, He had to put them inside something, a body. So He had to do something to let this life interact with the environment it was placed in. And so, uh, when God, what God formed from the dust was, was flesh and bone. And, and inside that, He placed life. He breathed into that something deeper, something there. Uh, so what we have sitting on chairs here this morning is physical. It's created from dust. It's, it's walking around. It's interacting with the world we live in. And uh, it's a breathing, functioning house for something that lives inside us. And I think the thing that lives inside us is forever tethered to our physical body. Or the moment that death happens, that inner thing is liberated to go on to the next thing. That's the way I, I view it. But when God breathed into Adam's nostril, something came into that body that was different. And that was a living soul that he placed there. And uh, it's true that animals have something like that. If you've been around animals long enough, they have a little bit of personality. They have a little bit of character. They have maybe even some basic emotions. I'm not sure. When, when a dog feels sad or when he feels happy, you can sort of tell the difference. But the, the soul of man is his ability to think and to reason and to make choices and to have uh, be responsive and interact with other people. And so we have this outer element and we have this inner element. And yet there's something else there. In Proverbs 20, 27, it says, The spirit of man is a candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. And so there's within man this inner witness, this divine witness, this portal for God to get into the person's consciousness and life. And it's this thing that an animal doesn't have, this access to, to eternity that can speak into his soul and heart. I believe that's the place and the way that God unites with men and works with them and, and where man may commune with God. Now, some would feel that the soul-spirit is one entity, one thing. I'm not here to debate that fully. I think there's things in Scripture that point otherwise. Um, I'm not sure what all the ramifications are of that, but 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, The very God of peace sanctify you holy, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. So it points out three things there that need to be preserved from now till Christ comes again. The body, the soul, and the spirit. Uh, Hebrews says, mentions all three again in uh, 4.12. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's Word 
discerns and puts apart even soul and spirit. Now, why joints and marrow as an example? Uh, if we were to look at a, a femur, you would look at that and you think that's a bone. And it is, but you break it apart, there's something different inside it. It's marrow. It's something that has a unique purpose. I guess it produces blood cells along with other things inside the body. Now, whatever your view of this is, if I would have a board up here to diagram on, if, uh, if you would try to diagram and give you a sense of how body, soul, and spirit work together, how would you begin to do it? Would you do it like a pie with three slices or made of this, this, and this? Uh, would you do it like a snowman? You have these three circles here that sort of relate but aren't quite, I don't know if that quite captures it. Um, if I was thinking about it, I'd probably think about it like an egg. You have an egg shell on the outside. You have the white inside that, the yolk in the center, and all three of the, the, the being, but uh, you can't get out inside it unless you, you crack it apart. Uh, and I don't think we'll fully realize who we are as soul and spirit until our body is taken away and we'll be able to see more fully uh, who we are as an individual. And uh, that's the intricate crowning creation of God. It's a very detailed, it's a very complicated thing, and that's where God wants to dwell. And I'm often struck with the similarity between God's design of a human and God's uh, plan for the tabernacle in the Old Covenant. And uh, I'm sure you've seen models of it. I've never been to a full-scale one. But there was the outer court where things were common, where things were accessible, and everybody could come. Uh, when the Jews would come, they could come into that outer court. They could bring their sacrifices there. And that's as far as they could go in relating to, to God. Then you had the, the holy place where only the priests could go in. The door was probably open. The people that came to the outer court could get a glimpse of what happened inside in that inner part. Then there was that third area there was walled off with this thick curtain that no one could pass except for the high priest once a year going in there to take blood to make atonement for the people. And uh, that was the tabernacle. And the Jews couldn't see into it except for the high priest, but they knew what was in it. They knew by what God had said and by what the priest said, what was inside that. Uh, they could come to the outer, they could see the inner, but they knew that inside that curtain, there was an ark of the covenant. And that was representative of the presence of God there, and it was a place where God said He would dwell and where He would speak to the people. And in there was, was uh, the law of Moses that He brought back from Sinai, there was the Aaron's rod that budded. There was a pot of manna. In other words, enshrined there in that thing was, was representation of the presence of God, the law of God, the life of God was all inside that, that inner court that they couldn't see, but they knew was there. Life and law was enshrined there. It was where God promised to rest and to meet with them. And though Israel couldn't see it, they knew the, whole, the glory of the whole place rested there in that inner sanctuary. We're not going to read it, but in 1 Samuel 4, you have a very sad story. The state of Israel is part of the sadness of it. Their fallenness, their Eli was priest, his sons were perverted, Israel was not doing well at that point, and in the midst of this, this spiritual decline, they had this war with the Philistines, and they went to battle that day, the first day out, and it was a it was a, a whipping. They came home having lost thousands of men, 
and they were defeated, and they didn't know why this had happened. And here's where they got this great idea. If we would take the ark of God with us, then we would win. We would have God's presence there on the battlefield, and there's nothing the enemy could do to stand against us. And so the two sons, these perverted sons of Eli, went to the priest, the, the tabernacle, inside the, the holiest place, and took the ark out, and took it out to the battlefield, and that's when the Philistines heard the noise of shouting and rejoicing, and they didn't know what it was about, and they encouraged themselves to fight like men the next day because they were up against it. And the next day was another rout for Israel. In fact, the worst thing happened. The, the two sons of, of Eli were killed. The ark was taken, and many people were slain that day. And this is what happened in 1 Samuel 4.19. This was the daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, this, this child. It says, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and prevailed, for her pains came upon her. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory of Israel, the glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. What was the tabernacle without the presence of God within it? It was a shell. There was nothing. All that was left was a building. All that was left was a ritual, a coming and going. But the core of it, the heart of it, the life of it, the thing that, that represented and symbolized the presence and life of God was gone. It was simply an empty shell. And there was no glory there. When I think of that story, and I think of Galatians 5, there's an echo of the same happening. There's an echo of the carnal condition in Galatians 5. Because a fallen man is very much in this condition where he has been made to house the, the presence and indwelling of God. But he's lost it. And he still has a body that's alive and thriving in this world. He's walking around looking like he's doing okay. It still has a soul. It's thinking. It's intelligent. It's emotional. It's, it's conniving. It's whatever it is. It's a living soul, but the spirit is dull and vacant and empty and comatose because the glory has gone out of it because God is not there. And that's a sad state to live in, and that's the outcome we see in Galatians 5. And the life of a sinful man is Ichabod to me. All the way through, it's, it's a glorious state. And in the absence of God there, life is no longer controlled by divine and spiritual principles that's governed by fleshly impulses and uh, earthly principles. Life takes on a different meaning and what comes out is a very different expression. If you have a life without a governing spirit of God there, it's a very soulish and carnal existence. Now, Everybody that I see here this morning has a body. If there's somebody without one, I sure don't see them. I sometimes don't know what else is on in my midst, but we'll be content to know that we all have bodies this morning. And Scripture refers to that part of us as flesh. It mentions over and over, and uh, flesh is a word used for any kind of meat, whether it's used for food or whether it's part of the human body or whatever it is. Uh, it's strong as has this, among other definitions, that human nature with all its physical 
and moral frailties and passions, our flesh. And in this body that God gave us, there's hunger and thirst. There's needs for rest. There's uh, instinct to survive. And many other things that God gave there. And they're good and necessary things. If you want survival and propagation of the human race, these things are absolutely necessary to have built in. And these things are given by God with the assumption that they will be under the governance of God's Spirit in the soul and and heart. And that's where it works the best. That's where it works. So when the the Spirit is lifeless and God is gone, something else happens and takes over. And uh, in Galatians 5, we already read this, in 5, 19, 21, what happens when the governing force that God wanted to be there is absent? You have all kinds of, of uh, sinful impulses that rule the life. Everyone here has a soul. It's a mind, a will, a emotions, a seat of our personality. And that's meant to operate in harmony with the Spirit of God. Um, but when a person is without God's Spirit, he is a soulish person. And I think that's the word that, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And it speaks of the natural man that does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. There's foolishness that can't understand them. He can think about them, but human reason is never enough to encompass them. And so he's without the benefit of what God wants him to understand. So the Spirit is awakening him, and God is present, helping him. This man has no grasp of spiritual things. So the word that Scripture uses for a man like this is carnal. And that is simply an extension of the word flesh, fleshly. It takes a, a noun and turns it into an adjective. The word flesh into something that describes a person that lives without the Spirit, is living with at the impulse of the flesh and in the reason of his, his godless soul. And that's carnal, carnality. And we should probably just go back and read these several verses that show us what happens when a person lives this way. In 19 of Galatians 5, and if you would categorize them as sins of flesh or soul or whatever it is, how would you do it? I, I looked at that. It would be interesting to do, but glance back over these things. For, now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Now, it's interesting to me that the very first four that he mentions are very much sins of the flesh. This is expressions of sexual appetites gone wrong. These are things that the, the natural instincts that God placed in a human person that are totally without the control and the oversight of God's Spirit dwelling there. Each of these terms carry a certain understanding, but, but they, all, they, they give the range of, of what humans are capable of doing. Uh, sinful unions, strong imaginations, uh, pornography, all these things are probably included in these, these four expressions. But the carnal person is very much controlled by the lust of his flesh, and that's very much what these words are getting at. There's another one here. If we keep reading, we find a few more. Envying or idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. As I looked at that, one thing I think we're seeing here is this basic survival instinct gone wrong. Uh, all of us would choose life over death, health over sickness, uh, safety over harm. That's just our natural instinct to do it. Animals demonstrate 
survival instinct very well. If you don't understand what we're talking about, go watch a herd of goats in their pecking order. I have a few, and I hope I have them just for about a week or two yet before I can pass them on and have learned my lessons with those creatures. But a goat's pecking order, we got about five of them about three or four years ago. And from day one, the big black one was the one at the top. So she could push everybody around. She would horn them off. She would push them out of her way. Her feed spot was this big, and nobody else gave him that range. Uh, the next one down the line could get pushed around by her, but she would push the rest. And so the next one down the line could get pushed around by the other two, but not the ones beneath her. So it's an interesting thing, but the, the one at the top, when she had a kid, she grew up being second in command. So she would also be bossy because her mom was. These things are genetically inherited, I guess, among goats. But uh, interesting. Sometimes people act like that. You watch my big dog when the little dog comes around for the feeding trough. So they get along great, except when I put feed down. And then the growls start. I mean, 10 feet away. You don't get close before you start growling. And just a basic desire to survive is so it turns into these things. Watch a snake that's been stepped on. But one mark of a carnal person is an animal response to life provocations. Life is very provoking. We get provoked all the time. But a mark of carnality is the way we respond to that is it this way that's mentioned in these verses is a spiritual way. The anger, the revenge, the quarreling, it's all written down here. Our survival, we, we tend to talk about fight or flight. That's the adrenaline response. Jesus said, try flight. He said, uh, if you're persecuted in this city, persecute you in this city, flee to the next. Uncontrolled appetites. We see that in these verses. Drunkenness, gluttony, revelings. Someone has said, and I believe it's probably true for most of us, that abstinence is sometimes easier than moderation. It's easier to simply say no than exist with a little bit of something we, we deeply enjoy. Uh, we need to learn to do both. Because even the good things in life that you need for survival can also turn into uh, excesses, drunkenness, gluttony, revelings, and so on. There's also sins of the soul here that have nothing to do with flesh. Eating, sexuality, uh, laziness, that's all a fleshly thing. But what about idolatry? What about witchcraft? What about seditions or disunity one with another? What about heresies, which has the idea of pulling apart in cliques and disunity? That's, that's in this context. It has to do with something deeper, our identity, our preferences, our will. Very much to do with that. There's sins that go deeper than just fleshly things. But when a man is carnal, he is controlled by flesh and unhelped by spirit, and that's a sad place to live. Emotions take over, jealousy and envy are work, fear dominates, idolatry uh, has its way, and uh, that's, that's an that's a Ichabod life. It's a life without glory. There's a life without God in it. It's a sad existence. You know, uh, I'm driven to ask this question. Is it possible to be a to know the Lord and be a carnal person at the same time? How would you answer that? 
I think both answers are dangerous. Uh, we could say, yes, it's impossible. Um, these things are so opposed. And you see one lusting against the other, and you see in Galatians that the one, the one that says that Christ has crucified the flesh. You never want to settle down on this and say, a spiritual life and a carnal expression are compatible. You never want to do that. Um, at the same time, to say it's impossible is also dangerous because we could be saying that if, unless we're perfect, we're not spiritual. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and called them brothers and called them believers. He called them carnal at the same time and called out their marks of carnality. But he never wanted them to stay that way. So you need a renovation of this, a change of this. I want to take you to John this morning. I know our time is nearing an end, but I think I am too. But John chapter 3. Uh, verse 3, do us well to look at this. This is the walk of a spiritual man. This is how things begin. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, talking to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. So when faith is exercised, when our hearts are drawn back toward God, and God responds to that and activates something in our heart, we call that the new birth. And there's, there's two important things that happen there. I think the first important thing is that, that God has our attention, and that he is doing a divine work in the heart. That is a very beautiful picture, and that's what, what needs to happen at this moment of being born anew. But the second thing that happens is, I'm engaging my will in a new direction. It's no longer me chasing after that which the flesh wanted, and that the, the, the fallen nature craved. It's now me looking toward the things which are above, and, and seeking those things in a way that I never did before. I recognize God's will. I recognize His rule in my life. I recognize the fallenness that I lived in, which has helped me work to do something about it. So it's not just a divine thing. It's also re-engaging my will in a new direction. Before, spirit was dead and flesh was my master. Now the spirit is resurrected and flesh becomes my servant. Uh, may we live that way. Flesh is not to be in control, but it's to be in servitude to the will of God. And that's when I live, begin to live in a new way. Jesus demonstrated the difference between carnality and spirituality so many times. If you read his life and think about these marked contrasts between what a carnal man does and a spiritual man does. And he was sleeping in the boat when the disciples were, were crying out and fearful I don't think I understand the word Galatenheit, but I think this is it. And he was sleeping in the boat when the boat was in the midst of a storm that threatened to swamp it. A perfect rest and calm. The disciples' fire from heaven was carnality. Jesus said, I've not come to destroy, but to serve and give life. When Judas betrayed Jesus for money, and Jesus said, I'm not concerned about money, I'm concerned about Judas. That's a marked difference. The carnal man holds up these things of earth and seeks after them with all the power he has. But Jesus said, 
I want the man. I want the Judas. Maybe for him. These are all things that help us understand this. Let's go to Romans. Let's look at a couple of verses there. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And this is the life He wants to give us and the change He wants to bring us. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 5, this is the one I was after. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now look at it this way, that in this great spiritual battle that is existing, that we are in this tug of war between, between the holy will of God and the, the perverted will of the devil, and we are, our soul is the prize. It's the soul that they're after. God wants to redeem it. Satan wants to destroy it. And Satan uses our flesh and the things of this world to appeal to the soul and draw it in a downward direction. We see it all around it. We feel it every day. We, the things that we deal with in life have this constant pool if we're not aware of it. But God, through the Spirit, wants to introduce a heavenly draw through that Spirit to draw the soul upward. And that's what that's the tug of war here. One through the things of the Spirit, the other through the things of the flesh. And it's our soul and our will in the middle that is making the choices that we make to choose one path or the other. The state of the person who chooses to follow the draw and the downward tug of earth and its, its attractions is being drawn into death. It says in these verses, He that is of a spiritual mind and pays attention to the things that God wants to show him and draw him and, and excite him about is one that's being drawn into life. And the spiritual man concludes, I don't owe the flesh anything. I owe the Lord. The flesh demands satisfaction. I don't owe it that. I can deny it. This man has found a better way, has a spiritual appetite. Do you remember the time in your life when devotions became a longing instead of a chore? That's a beautiful gift. Sometimes we might still struggle with that if our time is limited and we have things to do and we know we need to do the right things first. But our time with God is a longing of heart instead of a chore to be done. It makes a huge difference. Do you remember a shift in your life when coming to church was more than more than just a routine of life and, and, and it became something that I just love because I love to worship, I love to sing? Again, we might not all be perfect on that. I know I'm certainly not. I think it's our inner appetite that discerns more than anything else where I go for what I want. And a man is only as spiritual as his appetites that he condones as spiritual and follow these things. This man is governed by trust, not by fear. I think we see that in Romans 8.15. We have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You know, you would be lying, I, I'm sorry, I would be lying if I would say I've never been afraid. Maybe you would too, maybe you're different than I am. 
I think fear is a natural response to uncontrollable circumstances. But Jesus showed us a different way when he slept in the boat and said, Lord, you're in control. You can just rest here. And that's what he wants us to have. And probably the most beautiful and all-encompassing evidence of spiritual life is what we have back here behind us. When the Spirit is in control, that's what we get. We get the fruit of it. And I think the fruit begins in the soul and overflows into the life. It needs to show. It isn't just a feeling we have, but it also exerts itself and shows its presence into the life that we live. And it's a beautiful response and outcome of a spiritual life. We are the dwelling place of God. It either the, the, the glory of God is present or it's an Ichabod existence where we don't have it. We just have the shell of it. We have the, the uh, maybe the outward part of it. But if the Spirit is present and the Spirit is working, then it's a glorious life and a glorious church. And I read something that I was looking at some things and I'd like to share this with you. This stuff can't even where I found it. It's just a little comment what it means to quench the Spirit. And so we look at all these things. We think about our own life and think, well, where am I in this? Am I spiritual? Am I karma? What, what measure of each am I showing in my life? What can I do? Or what did I do to lose what I once had? And what can be done to gain back what I lost? This, this spoke to me. To quench the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 is a metaphorical expression easily understood. The Spirit may be quenched by forcing, as it were, that divine agent to withdraw from us by irregularity of life, frivolity, avarice, negligence, or other sins contrary to charity, truth, peace, and his other gifts and qualifications. We grieve the Holy the Spirit of God by withstanding his holy inspiration, the impulses of his grace, for by living in a lukewarm and incautious manner, by despising his gifts or neglecting them, by abusing his favors, either out of vanity, curiosity, or indifference. In a contrary sense, we stir up the Spirit of God which is in us by the practice of virtue, by compliance with inspiration, by fervoring his service, by renewing our gratitude, and by diligently serving Christ and doing the work of his Spirit. I think if we can be still long enough to think about it, and meditate long enough from the speakers about it, he can show us what steps could be taken to make our life a more glorious place where the Spirit of God is pleased to dwell and work out and show the world what he intended all along. I'm looking forward to the time when this is going to happen in full measure. I don't, I don't think it will probably happen here. But to dwell in this perfection of relationship like we were intended for in the beginning is one of the glorious states of living. Thank you. God bless you.